1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Alana Schwalski, RN and MP. Alana is a nurse, community health educator, activist, and writer who spent a decade as a pediatric nurse at the height of the AIDS epidemic. She's trained AIDS, educator, AIDS educators in Cuba and Tanzania, and currently teaches community health workers in diverse urban neighborhoods in New York City. Her essays have appeared in the American Journal of Nursing and The Veteran, and her work has been included in the anthology's Storied Dishes, what, uh, what Our Family Recipes Tell Us About Who We Are and Where We've Been, and Reflections on Nursing, 80 Inspiring Stories on the Art and Science of Nursing. A chapter she co-wrote appears in the textbook, Children, Families and AIDS, Psychosocial and Therapeutic Issues. She's the recipient of an award from the Barbara Deming Money for Women Fund and is proud to be recognized as the madrina, godmother of Proyecto Memorias, the Cuban AIDS Quilt Project. Today we'll be talking about her book *Waking in Havana*, a memoir of AIDS and healing in Cuba. Welcome, Elena. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you, and I apologized for my less than perfect Spanish. Oh, but <laughs> I thought it was pretty good, actually. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, your book comes from so many. You managed to weave so many different aspects of your experience together. You've had. Um, you know, several intersections with, with Cuba and AIDS both. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really stood out to me that uh, how, how much your life has intersected with AIDS, with Cuba, and how those things at some point came together it was uh, a remarkable story. Yeah, thank you. That's why it took me so long to write it. I think <laughs> <laughs> just to try to try that to not weaving, all things,
2: That weaving, That weaving.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's start at the beginning because you had a. Uh, of course, there's a part of your story that really intersects with with this show. Uh, what comes out of grief because you went to Cuba to uh, after your husband died,
2: mm-hmm. but.
1: I want to start earlier because you uh, went to Cuba very, very early in your life, early 20s. Yeah,
2: uh, tell, it was. Tell uh, us what
1: ca- how that 24. came about. I think I was 24. Mm-hmm. How did that come about that you were drawn to do that? Because I lived through that time too. And right. it was a very difficult thing to do at that point because. Yes. Of, embargo and and uh, the political climate around the U.S. and Cuba. So- yeah, no, it was. And by, by that age, I, I already
2: had a fair number of years um, kind of connected to political activism. I became active in the civil rights movement when I was still in high school. And then uh, I went to college, um, became active in the movement against the war in Vietnam, I left college and actually married and had a had a child, my son, and then I I was recruited to go on this trip by an organization called the Venceremos Brigade, which means we will win or we will overcome, which was bringing uh, young people from from the U.S. to Cuba to do um, physical work there in in su- support of this new uh, country that was building after the revolution. And I was very drawn to that out of my background in, in social justice movements and my sense of adventure, I think, too, to be perfectly honest. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I, I actually made the decision to leave my son, who was about two, with my ex-husband, his father, who was living on a Hippie commune in, in north of San Francisco. <laughs> Those were the days. And, Absolutely. And I went to Cuba with this group, and like as you said, it was illegal at that time. Um, so we traveled through Mexico. Photos of us were taken, you know, by FBI agents as we, you know, got off the plane in Mexico and. Got, prepared to get on our Cuban plane, and I later found my name um, in the congressional record. (laughs) Um, Through freedom of information or? No, just by Googling a lot. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, So it was, you know, it was quite an experience. We were there for two and a half months, and we built houses along with Cuban workers um, in a a new town um, because housing was a great need at that time and then toured the island, and I, I it just clearly found itself a place in my heart. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was just a, a, the experience of being with so many young Americans and also in Cuba where people were really trying to build a new life that had a sense of, you know, the collective good is more important than our individual gain was mm-hmm. what I what, what I got from that experience, and that resonated with me very mm-hmm. much in terms of my own
1: values. Interestingly, um, too, though, that trip uh, and the trip 20 years later were both after losses. Yes. Because I consider divorce uh, a, mm-hmm. a very appreciable loss. Yeah, and I think talk- that's very true. Yeah, you, you talked a lot about if I had... Uh, I was naive to the impact of three months away on a child uh, mm-hmm. because he left your son. But I was thinking that is a statement that I'm not sure many men would make who would go on a similar trip. Yeah, I, I think that's probably
2: true. And I didn't make it <laughs> until I started really digging deeper into my experience by writing. Um, and then I thought to my and, and also my son now has three small children. And as I'm watching him father those children, um, and I'm thinking, because he's a very present father, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, just really loving and present in their lives. And I think some of that you know, may come from his own experience of not um, really being raised with a, a present father. Um, and I wondered about, I started to wonder, like, would I make that kind of decision now, mm-hmm. with hindsight? Maybe not, you know, because three months is a long time in the life of a small child. Um, but I did, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, we've we're all we've all dealt with it,
1: <laughs> right? And so. and I, uh, as a parent of, I also have small grandchildren, so we have mm-hmm. that in common. Um, I, I realize looking back on my own parenting that I underestimated the power of children observing the kind of person you're being in the world uh-huh. that that I'm you wouldn't be able to pull that apart right you the fact that you went and did that also had an impact on how he sees commitment and uh-huh. uh, political activism probably all kinds right. of things so it's, right. a, it's a hard thing to pull apart isn't it yeah, it
2: really is. And I mean, the thing that I feel really good about and that kind of centers my feelings about this is that um, both my children in different ways, well, I have, really I have three children. I have a stepdaughter and all of them have been through significant loss in their lives and disruption. And without a doubt, it's had an impact on, you know, on them. But one of the things that I feel really good about is that they all are have are, have really solid humanistic values, and um, and they've all chosen careers in in the world where they are really involved in being of service to others, and. You know, so that, that feels good.
1: <laughs> and not um, unrelated, I think. Yeah, and I think not um,
2: unrelated.
1: One of my children was saying uh, recently to me that uh, the loss of my wife was a big deal, but not just in the negative, it also told her to, to believe in what she was doing. And mm-hmm. to really commit to it, to give it everything that she had, to be loving, to be, cl- you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of values that mm-hmm. came out of seeing that life is not guaranteed and, right, uh, you know, hard to learn that so young, um, but yeah. but an important lesson as well. So now, right. now fast forward yeah. <laughs> to. Um, you became a pediatric nurse working with AIDS, mm-hmm. and then your husband was diagnosed with AIDS. And uh, after he died, you're pulled back to Cuba. Maybe you can share that that part of the book a little bit, and then we can talk about that because sure. you know there's there's a, a forward motion to it, but also going back to something that that you'd yeah. experienced already, it's its an interesting juxtaposition.
2: All right, and it was almost exactly 20 years later and a lot of life had happened in between that kept me from ever realizing my desire to go back. Um, but I always it was always in the back of my mind, that's a place I'd like to visit again. Um, and I should just say that it, this all came about because I got a brochure in the mail for a public health delegation that was going to Cuba. Uh, Mm -hmm. sponsored by an organization, and would I like to join. Serendipitously, huh? Yeah, it wasn't a personal invitation. It was just, you know, they were sending out announcements. They had a mailing list, and I got one. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the brochure sat on my kitchen table for a really long time. (laughs) Um, And and so the part I'm going to read is, you know, I've pretty much made up my mind, but I'm still going back and forth a little bit about whether to really go on this trip. Um, so shall I launch? (laughs) Yes,
1: absolutely.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it had been six months since Clarence died, but I was still asking myself, what would Clarence have thought? What would Clarence have done as I struggled with the decision about whether to sign up for the Cuba trip? The adventure of travel was appealing. I had always loved the feeling of reinventing myself in a new and totally different environment. Even though it was not my first trip to Cuba, it had been 20 years since I'd been there. I was sure a lot had changed. I had changed. I seesawed back and forth between going and not going for a few more days and finally called to make my reservation. Why not, I told myself. What have you got to lose? The group would meet in Cancun on December 27th and leave for Cuba the next day. The night before the trip, with my bag packed and waiting by the door, I relaxed in the recliner and looked through the old photo album again, pausing at a family portrait that had been taken just months before Clarence died. I laughed when I remembered how hard the photographer from Sears had worked to balance the skin tones of Clarence and his daughter, Kaiwan, with my daughter and Angelica's olive-tinged complexion, and the pinkish hues of my son Jonah and me, so that we would all look natural in the photo. A blended family, indeed. I had wanted that picture so badly, to capture the whole family together before it was too late. Clarence had his usual big grin on his face, but I could see the telltale signs of illness, the weariness in his eyes, the way the blue and purple tweed jacket hung loosely on his thin frame, the bluish tinge to his lips. My hair was shorter, dyed auburn, and I was trying to hide my plump body under a loose-fitting ivory dress with large red roses scattered across it. My smile looked pasted on, and my gaze was far away. An old yellowed Polaroid was tucked into the binding at the back of the album. As I gently dislodged it, I spied myself, laughing and singing in the back of a truck, my arms around my comrades, dressed in denim overalls, my hair tied in a red bandana. Suddenly I sensed beside me the spirit of that laughing girl and I reached out to embrace her fearlessness. I'm going back to Cuba.
1: So that's how I got there the second time. (laughs) There's a certain way that that um, for me anyway, and I think I hear it in that passage. Grief uh, m- made me a lot braver. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was doing this or that thing that that I felt called to do up against dealing with losing someone so important? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that statement you made. What did I have to lose? Yeah, <laughs> you know, you you already lost. Uh, something someone you know so important to you Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I would have to say that it really it took me well you know six months of of and I really grieved during that time you know I really I did not sort of try to quote unquote move forward or you know I, Mm -hmm. I was really I mean, I went back to work after a couple of months, and I, I went through the motions of my life, but I was really deep in grief. Um, and so that's why I think it took me so long to decide to take this step. Right. Um, and, the, and I think the fact that I was going to a completely different place, but one that I remembered with a lot of affection made it possible to say, I can do this.
1: But then what is also notable is weren't weren't you going was that trip uh, involved with people with AIDS in Cuba
2: I didn't know it at the time although I mean I didn't know that I would have the opportunity I eventually did have to visit the the AIDS Sanitarium which at that time uh, Cuba had created residential, Um, spaces where people with HIV and AIDS were living um, pretty much in quarantine, although by 91 it was starting to shift, um, to sort of contain the epidemic. I knew that that was happening. I had read things about it. I wanted to visit, but I didn't know for sure I would be able to. But as it happened, we did visit um, an AIDS sanitarium on the outskirts of Havana. And I did connect with people that I know to this day, you know, all these years later, are still very dear friends.
1: To me, that sort of uh, connects uh, the grief to the trip. Ultimately, mm-hmm. you didn't know it would connect so deeply, right? But it's it's connected. Yes. <clears throat> yes. And I was I was a little afraid,
2: you know, to have that experience of that visit because. I didn't want it to sort of spoil <laughs> how I felt about Cuba um, <laughs> you know uh, and I had to work very hard to kind of open my mind and my heart and just absorb what I was really experiencing and seeing and you know hearing from people that I was speaking with and and start to kind of sort it
1: out in my own mind and then there's the aspect too i was I was thinking a bit I took a trip to China with my Mother and of course there's the picture of China we have because of the media and all that. And mm-hmm. then there's being in China with Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And I was I've never been to Cuba, but I was likening it a bit. You know, the yes. the actual uh, experience of how people live their lives in a place is nothing like the ideas were given about them. So right. when we come back, let's talk about your experience how you see Cuba uh, and and what happened for you there okay great and listeners you can find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice America and also there's a link to uh, a page that shows you how to buy my book and ocean between them my novel Um, please connect with me I want to know how you feel about the show And to find Elena and her book, you can go to ElenaSchwalski.com. That's spelled E-L-A-N-A. It's actually E-N-A, Cheryl. Oh, E-N-A. So sorry sorry about that. Thank you for interrupting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Elena, E-L-E-N-A-S-C-H-W-O-L-S-K-Y.com. Be back soon.
0: Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress anxiety and relationships perspectives with dr vadisha
3: patel airs live wednesdays at 1 p.m eastern time 10 a.m pacific on voice america health and wellness are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle it's not just related to your physical well-being it also means a healthier mind confidence improved health stamina and fitness talking with tremaine brings it all to you host tremaine ellis along with her husband and co-host david ellis will offer support advice guidance and motivation to keep you in your best shape both physically and mentally talking with tremaine can be heard live every wednesday at 6 p.m eastern time and 3 pacific on the voice america health and wellness channel
1: be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today.
3: Your life,
0: your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Elena Schwalski about her book, Waking in Havana. Before the break, Elena, we were talking, we were just on the cusp of really talking about what it was like in, in Cuba at that time, uh, the second trip, 1991. Still, you were not able to fly directly. Is that, is that right?
2: Oh, you had to go through a third country. We went through Mexico, through Cancun. Um, and I, when we got there, it was actually just the beginning of a tremendous economic um, downturn for Cuba because it was right around the time that the Soviet Union kind of collapsed and broke apart and um, and was no longer offering the same kind of trade subsidies and support that had been available to Cuba before, uh, so there were shortages of everything, food, fuel, um, you know, transportation was terrible. uh, And in fact, on our trip, a lot of the visits that we had planned to make to schools and hospitals and daycare centers and other places, uh, we had to curtail them because um, so many places were operating with a a very shoestring staff, so it was it was rough times, and you know the. But Cubans are amazingly resilient. Is one thing that I think everyone would agree to, no matter how they, <laughs> <what> <laughs> political perspective they have on Cuba. Um, it's an incredibly resilient, and optimistic people. I would say, and they just kind of tackled this challenge in very creative ways. You know, organic gardens were springing up all over the city and um, they imported, I think, I don't know how many, i num- these big numbers never stay in my head, but lots of bicycles from China and uh-huh. everybody started riding bikes and, you know, they just really kind of rode- were determined to rise to the occasion and they survived this period, which lasted a number of years um, they called it the special period in a time of peace to not make it sound so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was rough, and unfortunately, you know, I just came back from Cuba, and I was there in August, I guess. Yeah, and you know, you know, there's starting to be the signs of a of a of another situation that's um, economic situation that's pretty bad. Um, this a lot of it due to us policy unfortunately of embargoing trade and you know preventing travel so you know uh,
1: well i i went i i at, at times i've kind of known some about the situation with the us and cuba but i'd forgotten a lot of what i knew so i just went to wikipedia and and mm-hmm. kind of tried to refresh myself and um, it seems as if to me, there was uh, a real catch 22, uh, you know, the US, uh, um, the companies that were in Cuba were, were uh, kind of not cooperating with the new government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so then uh, you had to get where else would they get things but Russia. Right, And then they were further punished because it seemed like such a catch-22 situation that's never really been um, mediated, I guess I want to say. It's like
2: a vicious circle, really, that I think. And and I think that, um, you know, to his credit, I think President Obama was trying to begin to say, well, wait a minute, why really? Why, <laughs> you know,
1: uh-huh. like, is what Cuba, are we after, and what, yeah, is Cuba how, really? how does this end?
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, are they really a threat to our security in some way, you know, or do we just not like their choices about, you know, or do you know, whatever? But you know, there were some steps that were being taken that that were um, to normalize relations. And, and that's what I believe in lots of people. I think the majority of people now in, in this country actually believe that there's no, no real reason not to normalize relations with Cuba. Um, and it's just a shame that it's become this political football, you know, and, and the situation can't be allowed to be resolved in that
1: direction. So, um, and we, w- we won't solve that problem today, but it uh, it feels it uh, like an important thing to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, sure. I think
2: it is. I think it is, and and I think if when pe- people go to Cuba, because people U.S. citizens do go to Cuba <laughs> uh-huh. in fairly large numbers, and you know, and they come back saying the same thing, like, "Wow, friendly people, exciting culture." lot to learn a lot to think about you know no reason not to have the freedom to travel there yeah for sure so and certainly that's how i felt every time i traveled there.
1: uh-huh yeah so um let's go back to what you were bringing with you uh on all these trips to cuba which to me is a very personal connection to um, to AIDS and how that affects couples and families, mm-hmm. um, and your own process. You talk about them a little separately, but obviously over time, people there got to know your, um, uh, you know, your. Uh, personal story mm-hmm. um, your per- particular um, view on um, on it. So how did those two weave together uh, over many uh, visits? Over time,
2: you know, in 91, I made some contacts and then uh, I kept up with those folks over, you know, the next few years. And I made a couple more trips back and then we, uh, Actually, my my pediatric AIDS program actually brought some Cuban doctors and nurses to study with us, which was, you know, a really amazing thing that we managed to achieve. And then in 96, I had gone back to school um, to get my master's in public health because I really wanted to get away from the illness and, you know, just the, the intensity of working on the front lines as a nurse, you know. And um, so I was studying community health education, and I had to do some field research, and I managed to work it out that I could actually legitimately, legally, and every other way do it in Cuba, working at the AIDS sanatorium and training what would become Cuba's first group of HIV AIDS peer educators. So they were people living with the virus who were for the first time going to go out into their communities and educate the rest, you know, the rest of the population. Um, by that time, this life in the sanatorium was voluntary and people had a choice about whether they lived there or didn't. Um, and so I, I worked there every day. I commuted from <laughs> a room I rented in Havana out to the sanitarium and worked with the Cuban educators to develop a, a program. Um, and as part of that program, I shared my own story. Um, so that was the first time, as you mentioned, that people really got to know that deeply about me.
1: Um, and, it, and, oh. that, and that uh, touched me because that means when you went six months after, right? Yeah. People maybe didn't know, uh, which, which was notable to me.
2: Right, I mean, some people did know because there were sessions where we shared, you know, experience like that um, on the trip. But certainly, I wasn't. That wasn't the way I was, you know, kind of. That wasn't what I was doing there, kind of, you know. Uh huh. But in '96, it, it made sense to, you know, share my story. And as part of that, I had brought these photos of panels that I made for for my husband Clarence and his whole family made that are part of the AIDS Memorial quilt that now lives in a warehouse, <laughs> but at that time was still being displayed um, in its entirety in, in, different, in Washington. And the Cubans had never heard of that. They didn't know what it was. They were absolutely enthralled by the idea, um, very moved and very, you know, just taken with the idea of having a way like that to memorialize those who had died. And so while I was there, and the reason I say I'm so proud of being the madrina (laughs) or the godmother is that we started, we made a panel, basically. Um, And that was became part of our activity together. And that has grown into a whole project in Cuba. So it's very, it's very moving. It's It's the thing that I think I feel, one of the things I feel the proudest of in my life that 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 Im- human emotion was able to transcend all of the political barriers and, you know, everything
1: <laughs> to right. come
2: to life there. So,
1: right. Maybe as as background, could you maybe read about Clarence's panel? Sure, from the book. Yeah, I will do that.
2: Um, so, the, the, actually, what I'm the part I'm going to read is. Um, is when I for the first time and went to Washington to a display and encountered his panels there and that was um, in 19... Oh gosh, 1992, I think, or 93. On a cloudy October day, I wandered the Washington Mall in a daze. Clarence's block number 02459 scribbled on a piece of paper clutched tightly in my hand The quilt panels were sewn together in groups of eight, forming 12 by 12 foot blocks with white plastic walkways between them. A box of tissues was carefully placed at a corner of each block and white clad volunteers moved around the quilt, helping visitors find their panels and offering quiet support. The sound of the names being read over the loudspeaker system drifted over my head as I walked barely glancing at the panels on either side of me, which stretched in seemingly endless rows from one end of the mall to the other. When I finally found Clarence's block, I dropped to my knees on the damp grass, patting the quilt panel, straightening it, laughing, crying. Clarence's four panels shared a block with four others. This seemed strange to me at first. Who were these people sharing Clarence's memorial? In one corner, a blue fabric rectangle bore the name Nicholas Schaffner, appliqued in large cursive letters. Who was he and who had made his panel? The other three bright red panels represented babies and children. Their names and ages ranging from four months to eight years were scattered across the fabric with stars and angels and rainbows. It seemed fitting somehow that Clarence would be joined to all of these kids He came from a large family, 11 brothers and sisters in all, and was often in the midst of an assortment of nieces and nephews, knuckleheads, as he called them, all vying for his attention. Oh, sorry. Uh, Small clusters of people gathered at every square. A tall, gaunt man stood silent and alone with a single red rose in his hand. After a very long time, he laid it down on the panel in front of him and moved on down the row. And through that whole long day, the reading of the names went on and on like a river of memories flowing through our hearts.
1: Oh, I love that line. (laughs) And so... um, I, I'm i just aware that, you know, over the many visits you talk about in your book, uh-huh. that that depth of your experience with Clarence seems seems to come more and more deeply uh, into your relationships with the people there. But I, I also read, I think, into it a little bit of Hesitancy, uh, a little bit of caution not to impose your experience on the people there. Would that be fair to say?
2: Yes, I think that's very, very true. Um, You know, I was very aware of being an outsider to the culture, to the country, even though I was living there and I was pretty immersed in life there for a six-month period, I still, you know... I was going to be going home. (laughs) And, um, you know, so in a way I was sharing their lives and their challenges and their hardships. And in another way, I always knew that, you know, that was a separate thing from my life. Um, And also, I've just become more and more aware as I've, you know, traveled more and just how careful we have to be not to make assumptions about certain cultural experiences and I really wanted to understand without a lot of um, sort of bio- hidden biases and assumptions. Um, and the other thing I think, and this is, has to do with, I guess, what how I feel about the role of writing as part of my healing process.
1: Mm-hmm. Just the
2: act of writing the book has been so healing for me. And just to quickly say, when I first started writing this book, I was only telling the Cuban stories. Because... I couldn't see my own story. (laughs) Like, I didn't think I... I I, We can be so close that we can't see, huh? Yeah, and also I just felt like, well, who would want to read my story? You know, who would want to know my story? I I was really... And the act of writing and having people read what I'd written and say, but where are you? (laughs) You're the one who... Experienced this and who did all this and went through all this, and you have such a connection. Why aren't you bringing it into this story?
1: And it's it's actually hard to imagine the book without. Well, I was. I mean, it would have been a different book for sure.
2: Like stories from AIDS in Cuba, you know, and each chapter would be a different person, you know, story, and that's what I thought I had. Um, and it was, it took me a long time to, to both recognize and accept that my story belonged there and, you know, um, and then to find a way to, to do it, um, that felt respectful and, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> and so in the end, uh, and we'll just get started cause it's almost time for a break, but, but in the end, um, what what ways did you find it was similar for people there, and what ways did you find were radically different? Well, I think, um,
2: you know, something that I found is similar just everywhere, I think, with, with this, you know, that, that the diagnosis of, of AIDS until fairly recently, and I think we forget this, you know, because now – what is it, the last maybe 10 years or so, maybe more that it's, that AIDS has been kind of more like a manageable chronic disease. Um, But at that time, the diagnosis of AIDS was looked upon as a death sentence. Absolutely. And it was really, there was a before and an after, (laughs) you know, that was very powerful and dramatic. And I shared that with the people that I met in Cuba. We all had very different stories of how the diagnosis was made, the way it was transmitted, how it affected us personally, families, society, stigma, you know, what happened to us, very different. But that experience of my life is divided by this into a before and after I think was very universal.
1: Mm. I found that it's, also
2: in the families I worked with. Um, and that's probably absolutely. true for many diseases where there's such an uncertain future and where death is a real strong possibility. Um but I think AIDS was, it, it, uh, you know, it, it was, was just,
1: unique and particular. Yeah, I it? think yes. so. And the
2: fact that it was an epidemic and that it was and it was so qu- from one person to another, right, and, tended you know. to
1: be so quick.
2: Yes. So that's what was-
1: you shared in common. When we get back from the break, let's talk about the things that you you experienced as different there mm-hmm. from here. Sure. Uh, listeners, you can go find us both during the break. I'm at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. And to find Elena and her book, you can go to elenaschwalsky.com. Back soon. Become
3: our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. To see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or a single day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing tune in every thursday at 4 p.m eastern time and 1 p.m pacific time on voice america health and wellness
0: opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Elena Schwalski talking about her book, Waking in Havana. And before the break, Elena, we were... uh, talking about what you what you felt commonality about with with people in cuba who were living with aids and and that was the kind of terror of uh, a quick death and um you know that kind of sense of threat um and we were we were you know kind of talking about the particularities of aids mm-hmm. um which we could have a whole show on that, but right. having lived in San Francisco when all that happened, uh, it, it was very terrifying. People didn't really know what was gonna happen. They didn't understand the illness obviously because it had just happened. And there was a lot of prejudice against people who had the illness. Um, what did you find was different in Cuba from here?
2: Well, one of the things, you know, that, that some people may know about Cuba that I mentioned before is that when the epidemic first started, and uh, they didn't know it was in 85, I guess, that they had their first case there. Um, it still was not super known. Uh, it was known how it was transmitted, but um, a lot of things weren't known. And Cuba was very concerned about containing an epidemic. Like they, um, you know, they were a small island, very isolated, struggling economically. And they knew that if they had a major outbreak of a huge epidemic like was beginning to seem like it was starting in, in other places in the world, they just wouldn't have the resources to be able to take care of people. So they did what they, what they do with every other disease that they know can be transmitted from one person to another. And that is a form of quarantine until we know more about it, until we can figure out what to do. Um, So they moved people into these residential communities um, called sanitariums. And initially it was obligatory um, just upon being given a positive test result. So many people were not sick at all, had no symptoms. Regardless of that, everyone who had a positive test result had to move into these communities. And in many cases, that meant a separation of families. Um, So for me, that was really, I had just been through, you know, being at my husband's side for two years as he struggled with this illness. And I was trying to imagine what would that have been like for us, you know. Yes, Um, if we had been separated during that time, which we would have been because I think the universe um, was not infected. Um, And so that, you know, that took a lot of like kind of processing on my part, talking to folks, digging deeper, understanding. Um, And the thing that and it was harsh for a lot of people. There's no question about it. They experienced it as very harsh to be separated in that way. And at the same time, they were super well cared for. So their housing was guaranteed, and they had nice housing. They had air conditioners, which most people in Havana did not have at the time. Uh-huh. They didn't have to uh, stand online and use a ration card to buy, you know, their basic food um, supplies. They were like delivered to them, and um, you know, they had medical attention. Right there, whenever they needed it, and high quality medical attention. And they had a very supportive community of people who were in the same situation. And I often wondered while I was there trying to kind of parse this all out. I worked in Newark, New Jersey. I had 75 families on my caseload. Many of them had been like, their kids had been thrown out of school. You know, they traveled like halfway across the state to buy their medications because they didn't want anybody to know, they had a tremendous fear of being evicted from their housing. They were struggling financially. I, I wondered to myself, I wonder if they would have chosen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> had they had they been given. Had they had that a choice? choice, you know, because so there was something harsh about it in the separation, and yet there was something very supportive about it in the care and the and the just
1: solidarity and support that was offered well and i'm i'm thinking of you know the the part of the epidemic i'm most intimate with san francisco gay men's um community and the way in which um, people with the illness were caring for the other people with the illness right you know and and the the resources of that community uh i i'm it it did bring together the lesbian and gay men communities at that uh-huh. time because uh-huh. the lesbians were very unlikely to to contract AIDS right. and became caregivers. But you know, I wonder how many men would have chosen to go to a place where they'd be cared for. Yeah, uh, you know, just so that um, there'd be enough care to go around. Right, and it shouldn't be either or. <laughs> you know, indeed. <laughs> it
2: shouldn't be that, but um but it was very, you know, there's always a lot more um, I think nuances in things when we do dip below the surface. Um, and that's Definitely. what was that was what was very eye-opening about my experience in Cuba that when I really started to think about you know different parts of it, you know, and and yeah, I could just see um, the nuances and the layers and you know, how much I had to kind of unpack to really, truly
1: understand. Mm. I'm, I'm contrasting two stories in your book in my mind. Mm-hmm. There's, there's Caridad who right. did have to leave her son. Yes. Who was 10. Correct. Yes. Yeah. He was. 10. I, I, I mean, that's, that's almost impossible to imagine. You've, you've just found out that your life may be very short Mm -hmm. And then you have to leave your child. Right. Uh, That must have been horribly difficult. Yeah. And it was, you know, the parallels like I,
2: Caridad was a dear friend. Um, She died, I guess it's about maybe five or six years ago now. Um, Her husband died much earlier on than she did. They were both infected. He, He was a soldier in Angola. And Cuba had, you know, uh, participated in repelling like South African mercenary forces from Angola. And he was, he had been there and uh, people were infected through sexual liaisons, probably most, most likely, and returned home without knowing. And, and in this case, he infected his wife without knowing before he was diagnosed. So they were both infected. And their son, um, Jose... They sent him to a boarding school, which was not a totally uncommon experience in Cuba. There were, you know, boarding schools, mm-hmm. um, not private. These were government, you know, schools where children lived and um, and studied. And so they sent him there. But she always said that was not a decision she would have made if it hadn't been for, you know, for this. And she, in fact, she was one of the people who led the sort of struggle to say, wait a minute here, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're not criminals, we're people who have an illness. And we need to be, um, you know, we need we don't because at first they had to wear, you know, hospital pajamas. And, you know,
1: it just gradually really, well, fear, fear causes us to do fearful things. Yes, (laughs) that's that's what I concluded. Yeah. I I want to end, uh, because we only have a couple minutes left. Okay. I wonder if you'd read about uh, obviously people should go to the book to read much more about that because it's a very deep part of your book, those differences right. and similarities. But I would like you to share about the Cuban Quilt Project Yes. Um, because that's such a beautiful, uh, boy, that's such an example of what this show is about, you know, something mm-hmm. coming out of our grief that's very beautiful. Would you yeah. share that? So yes, and
2: I w- I will have to shorten it, but um.
1: This, yeah, about a minute.
2: We okay. Is what okay. we got? <laughs> I'll just start. Okay, this is about the first display of Proyecto Memorias, the Cuban quilt in Havana, Cuba, um, and the quilt has been spread out in the in front of the Capitol building of of Havana. Elena, favor de presentarse al frente. Alejandro's voice over the loudspeaker at the Capitolio pulled me back into the present. There were only a few people around the edges of the display as I took my place behind the microphone and began to read, Orlando, Alexei, Norma, Nyorka. In a trembling voice, I added the names of some of the kids I had cared for in my clinic in New Jersey, Ella, Jasmine, Christina, And then I spoke Clarence's name in a strong, clear voice, and the names floated out into the air and over the quilt like runaway balloons lifting up and up into the sky. Caridad called me over to greet her son, Jose, and we walked together to look at the panel she had painted for Orlando. We joined hands in a moment of respectful silence when it was time to close the display. As I looked around the circle, I couldn't help wondering which of my Cuban friends I might never see again.
1: Oh, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Okay. I hope people will go see the book. I hope so. And next week, I'm hosting a show with a live audience as part of the Reimagine End of Life Festival. If you're in San Francisco Bay Area on October 30th, I hope you'll join us. You can find all about that uh, at the Reimagine website. I'll be interviewing Ken Ross about his mother, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and what it was like to grow up with her. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.